Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. This morning, J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo kicked off earnings for the biggest banks. And in some ways, the divergence between these two behemoths really highlights the bifurcation of the banking industry right now. Joining us to talk about that and just the results in general, Charles Peabody, uh, president of Portales Partners, LLC. Thank you so much for being with us, Charles. We always love having you on. So let's start with JP Morgan. Shares up more than 4% after reporting better than expected earnings, benefiting from consumer banking and the gap between how much they pay depositors and how much they're earning from loans. What was your biggest takeaway from the report? Well, it, it, you're right. It was a very solid uh, quarter. And you're right. There is a real bifurcation between what JP Morgan and, and Wells reported. In the case of J.P. Morgan, this is a company that has been investing in its businesses and growing revenues. In the case of Wells Fargo, revenues are shrinking. Um, the biggest takeaway, I think, um, going forward is that this is probably the peak year-over-year quarter in net interest income, um, number one. And that's your highest P.E. source of revenue. And the second biggest takeaway is you're beginning to see um, credit deterioration. Okay, so let's let's unpack both of those issues. That this is the peak year for net interest income. So peak quarter, yeah. The, this qu- peak quarter. I'm trying to figure out whether that is simply due to the Federal Reserve being on hold, or if it has to do with uh, the rate of loan growth slowing, or or, or what you're seeing there. Yeah, it, it is a combination. For for example, J.P. Morgan was growing their core loans at a 7 to 8% rate in the first half of 18. By the fourth quarter of 18, their core loan growth was around a 6% annual rate. Here in the first quarter, it slowed to 5%. Now, J.P. Morgan's doing that on purpose, and it, and it is very wise and prudent of them because of where we are in the, in the economic cycle. Um, so you're getting less loan growth driving NII. The flat yield curve is also going to put pressure on net interest uh, margins. Um, and so, for example, in, in this morning, um, Wells Fargo's stock started up in the morning, but as the conference call went on and they lowered their NII growth forecast to a, a, you know, a fall of 2 to 5%, then the stock tanked. So uh, one other aspect of net interest income that I want to unpack before we move on to, to credit deterioration is this idea that banks have been able, big, the biggest banks have gotten away with not passing along the extra yield, the extra rate uh, that they get from the Fed funds rate, as well as just in general uh, on loans to the depositors. And they've paid their depositors almost nothing, even as online firms, credit unions have offered higher yields uh, for that money. I'm just wondering at what point you're going to actually see some kind of migration of deposits away from the biggest banks to some of the smaller ones that actually are paying them uh, for their money. I think that's a very good point, Lisa, because the more bullish analysts are saying that the deposit beta will slow as the year progresses because the Fed is on pause. If you look at J.P. Morgan's um, projection for deposit growth for the industry this year, they're expecting it to slow to about 2%. So there's going to be an increased um, bidding for liquidity in the form of deposits. 
the non-bank system and the small regional banks are the ones that really need the liquidity. And so I think you're going to see much more aggressive um, bidding for those deposits from those two entities. And I think eventually the big banks like J.P. Morgan are going to have to pay up. Which will so also... I don't expect the deposit beta to slow as much as others do. Interesting. Okay, so let's move on to the credit deterioration. Uh, where in either Wells Fargo or J.P. Morgan's earnings did you see this in, a most, in the most pronounced way? And, and how significant is it? Well, you saw it on a number of fronts, and I think it's very significant. I, I, you know, we've been waiting for signs of credit deterioration for two years now, and I think we've grown immune to those early signs. But uh, I'll tell you where I saw it. All right. Net charge-offs and loan-loss provisions for both Morgan, Wells Fargo, and PNC, which reported this morning, came in higher than expected. Non-accrual loans, particularly on the corporate side, um, rose, and this is the second quarter in a row that it's rose. Um, PNC raised their future forward guidance uh, for um, provisioning levels um, by about $25 million. That doesn't sound like much, but it is significant. And all three banks added to their reserves for future losses. In the past, they were releasing reserves. So you saw it on so many fronts. And then prior to this quarter, you were beginning to see the inflow of new problem assets starting to outstrip the return to performing status. And that was a sign that there was organic credit deterioration starting to take place. Where are we seeing the deterioration most uh, pronouncedly? In other words, is it corporate? Is it consumer? Is it specific consumer loans? It, it's definitely corporate. And, you know, it's hard to say that there's a theme in terms of industry, but you're seeing it in manufacturing, you're seeing it in retail, and you're seeing it in commercial real estate. That's so interesting at a time when credit is still so free, uh, and certainly equity markets reflect a certain enthusiasm. Does this give you yeah, pause? I, yeah, I, I'm perplexed um, by the lack of reaction to what I see as you know the, the seeds of, of a credit cycle developing. Um, you know, it, to me, today's action is somewhat curious. I mean, it, it doesn't have the feel of true institutional, you know, core buying. It, it, it has the feel of, of someone goosing the market in terms of the bank stocks. Charles Peabody, thank you so much for taking the time with us. We always love your insights. Charles Peabody, president of Portalis Partners. Joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, I'm so pleased to say, Tara LaChapelle, uh, who covers all things media and deals and telecom for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, Tara, I find this deal fascinating. They unleashed Disney Plus, which is the answer to Netflix. But can we start with just how limited is this offering at first? Right. I mean, this offering, it's $6.99 a month and a lot has been made of the price, but it's because there's not going to be a whole lot on it to begin with. If you're a really big Star Wars fan, perhaps there's a draw there because they are going to be able to have all the old Star Wars films, which wasn't a sure thing. We didn't know that there was a big surprise last night because Disney had actually sold the rights to those movies to Turner a while back. So they probably had to pay up big time to get those rights back for the Disney Plus app. So if you like Star Wars, 
Wars, okay, you've got that. A Star Wars series is going to be on it, uh, The Mandalorian. And then a lot of old Disney movies. So if you have young kids, perhaps it's good for that because we know kids don't mind watching the same movies over and over again. It's a great way to, so to keep them busy. <laughs> but other yes. than that, you know, it, it's it's billed as sort of the family app complement to ESPN Plus and Hulu, which are this, you know, sports and more of the adult content, I guess you could say. But to me, it really is for super fans of Disney. And at $6.99, you know, you're really not getting a whole lot of, for that price at first. What's the vision for Disney Plus? I think Disney Plus is sort of the the product at the center of the future of Disney, which is kind of amazing. And I, I, I made the point in my columns today that, you know, that's why the name kind of concerns me, because Disney Plus implies it's sort of like an add-on, a supplement to the real Disney, when really they're staking their future on this app. And it's not going to be profitable in two, until 2024, which is going to be a few years after CEO Bob Iger, who's leading this mission, is long gone. He's retiring in 2021. So there's still a lot of questions about what this is going to look like, how it's going to disturb the rest of the empire as an increasing amount of content goes to the app and not to Disney's other properties. How is this going to be the future, though? I mean, is it? If, it, if I assume that eventually it will have more content. You're talking about the limited offerings at, in the initial rollout. What is the content eventually, and how does this end up being the monster revenue driver uh, that Disney really needs? So I think what they're envisioning is, as we've sort of seen this balkanization of the TV industry, that Disney is increasingly going to keep anything that comes that's made by Disney on Disney Plus. That's where you're going to have to subscribe to to get it or to ESPN Plus and Hulu and maybe there'll be some sort of bundle of those three apps. But basically, if, you, if you're a Star Wars fan, if you like Marvel movies, if you want uh, Pixar movies, if you want National Geographic content, you're going to have to subscribe to Disney Plus. So they're really sort of uh, monopolizing that content for their own app, and it's not going to be av- available in other places. I mean, you can still, you know, big big films will still go to the movie theaters, and and maybe people will still pay to go see those. You know, Marvel big productions, maybe that still draws people out to pay and go to the movie theaters. But at the end of the day, I think what they're saying is the app is going to be the new home of Disney, and you need to subscribe if you want anything Disney. So people are focusing on Netflix today, and Netflix shares are are slightly lower. But to me, the real losers here are potentially the big cable networks. Absolutely. I mean, Disney right now is very dependent on the traditional bundle still. And, you know, they're not fully moving away from that by any means with this Disney Plus app yet. They I, I was uh, hearing from Kagan, uh, part of S&P Global Market Intelligence, that Disney gets about $15 a month per subscriber from its top 12 TV networks, which is a ton of money. And they're going to have this app for $6.99. They generated about $3 billion in box office ticket sales last year from its films. And Avengers Endgame opening later this month could be the biggest opening ever. So they are still very dependent on these former revenue streams. But I think Disney Plus will accelerate this cord cutting trend because if you are such a Disney fan, why would you subscribe to cable at, you know, $100, some hundred some odd dollars a month, or you could just get Disney for $6.99, and I think that's what they're really hoping for. Although, can you really get it for $6.99? My question is, when they actually start to incorporate more offerings onto Disney+, Plus. Can they possibly stay at this price that undercuts Netflix? I mean, that's the reason why people kind of were so awed by it, because it just, you know, 
blows Netflix out of the water in terms of uh, in terms of discounts. Right. I mean, they've left themselves a lot of wiggle room to raise the price at six ninety nine. It's much cheaper than Netflix at twelve ninety nine. But again, Netflix has more. I would say diversity of content for adults at least. Um, but yeah, they've left themselves a lot of room. And I, I would imagine the company hasn't said anything about this, but I would imagine that over time as bigger hits make it to that app and there are increasing number of originals, they will have both the wherewithal and the need to raise the price. Okay. So going forward for Netflix, what is sort of the key test about whether this will actually draw people away from it? Yeah, because I think right now the the draw with Netflix is that it's good enough for the price, right? You know, maybe it doesn't have always the the best quality movies and, you know, it doesn't have some of the TV shows you like to watch on cable. But at the end of the day, at, you know, $13 a month, it's kind of a great deal. The question is, over time, does it lose that appeal as Disney Plus comes on board and then AT&T launches some app around HBO and the other assets it bought from Time Warner? And then there's all these other free ad-supported apps coming coming out now this year. And that question is, you know, do people still need to pay for Netflix? I think for a lot of people, it's going to be sort of the, the base case. It's kind of like what you need and then what else can you afford to pay for? But for others, you know, for parents, maybe Disney Plus solves a lot of their problems and they don't need Netflix. And, and that'll be interesting to see over time. Does Netflix lose sort of that that premium? I honestly want to use that quote for the rest of my life. Maybe for parents, Disney Plus solves all of their problems. <laughs> Tara LaChapelle, thank you for being here uh, with us. Tara LaChapelle is a Bloomberg opinion columnist focused on deals, telecom, and media. Disney Plus definitely giving a lift to Disney shares. When you look at the global outlook today, there are a lot of concerns on the horizon. Brexit, you have the European Union slowing down, you have rising strains of populism threatening uh, the trade backdrop, but really how bad is it? Joining us now to discuss Mike Buchanan, Deputy Chief Investment Officer for Western Asset Management Co., which is an independent affiliate of Leg Mason and oversees uh, about $430 billion. He joins us from Pasadena, California. Mike like, love having you on. I want to start there. Do you think that there is just too much pessimism uh, baked into uh, risk assets right now, even as they continue to rally? Do you think that there still is too much pessimism baked in? Yeah, I, I would say that there's certainly a lot to worry about, and those worries uh, get uh, a lot of attention and a lot of focus, as we think they should. Um, but as you said, the markets continue to uh, to march in a positive direction, and, and actually, I think that's that's validated. I think when you look at fundamentals, when you look at valuations right now, when you look at relative value, um, we still think there's a, a pretty compelling case for risk risk assets within fixed income. Obviously, we had a very very strong first quarter, so you know the magnitude or the the trajectory of the rally is unlike, unlikely to uh, sustain. Uh, but I think, you know, from where we are now through the end of the year, I still think you can get reasonable returns um, in a lot of the risk sectors within fixed income. Okay. Are you talking about U.S. high-yield bonds? Uh, that would certainly be one U.S. high-yield. Um, you know, we have been uh, favorable on U.S. high-yield. We uh, we thought that that sell-off that we witnessed in the fourth quarter where you saw spreads go from, 
you know, a little over 300 basis points over treasuries at the beginning of the quarter, all the way out to almost 550, we really felt like that created a, uh, a very uh, a compelling buying opportunity. And in a lot of our uh, portfolio strategies, we added to high yield late last year, early in January. Um, and again, you know, we've been surprised at how quickly the market has recovered. Um, but even where we are right now, Lisa, I would still say, you know, again, you're, you're at a yield north of 6%, uh, you know, defaults very, very low. Um, fundamentals, like I said earlier, very strong. So I'm looking right now at uh, U.S. high yield debt returns of 8.2% so far year to date. It does raise a question, especially as yields go to the lowest uh, since October of last year, retracing all of the losses or all of the rise in yields and the, and, the, and the decline in prices that we saw over November, December. How much more upside is there, though? Yeah, I think with, with high yield, you know, it's it's not necessarily about more spread tightening. So, you know, one of the great things about uh, high yield is that it is a really nice carry trade. If you just have it on, you're clipping a, a you know a nice coupon. You're you're clipping a north of six percent yield. So I don't think you necessarily need to get uh, spread compression or spread tightening and capital gains. I think just simply holding it and uh, earning that carry or earning that yield uh, still translates into a, a pretty good return profile in a in a world where you know you look at um, you know there's over 10 billion of neg- negative yielding assets out there. What about emerging markets? Uh, we've liked emerging markets, continue to like emerging markets uh, in in many different forms. Uh, local currency, uh, probably our most passionate uh, overweight within the the spread sectors. Uh, there, we just think you know you've got very high nominal yields. You've got inflation trends that uh, are trending lower, just as they are in developed markets. And then when you look at real yields, the differential uh, between developed markets and developing markets, that's abnormally high. So we think that's a very uh, attractive uh, sector within emerging markets. But we also have uh, some uh, favorites in the uh, hard dollar EM space as well, the dollar denominated. So uh, I, I see that you just uh, spearheaded the firm's new global outlook, which is very beautiful. So congratulations. It has like lots, of, lots of pretty graphics. Um, the most contrarian call that I thought in here was that people are too pessimistic on Europe. And this has actually gone from contrarian to a little bit more accepted that, that already there is so much negativity based in, uh, baked into asset prices in Europe that there could be potentially opportunities there. Where are you seeing opportunities in Europe given that backdrop? Yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's right, Lisa. You said it the right way that, um, you know, it's just really about the bar being set so low in, in Europe and the outlook is so gloomy that the likelihood that um, you could see some positive surprises we think is, is very real. We think you could get a, uh, a, a catalyst once if we get a trade agreement worked out with China, that that could have some follow through for uh, Europe and Germany in particular. Um, but we would really say this. We would say the opportunities... Um, that you get by identifying uh, a stronger Europe aren't necessarily in Europe. It really, it's really about how that translates to global growth. And Europe is a, is a key component of global growth. So our story really is that, you know, if you put the main ingredients of global growth together, whether it's China, U.S., Europe, that Europe is that one piston or that one cylinder that, you know, everyone has a lot of doubts on. And we just think that it could be 
uh, a little better than very gloomy expectations. So given all of that, and it seems like you're pretty optimistic and constructive just generally on all things risk, I'm trying to understand whether that necessarily translate in, translates into higher developed market government bond yields, because right now we're not seeing inflation tick up. You do see that negative yielding debt backdrop, and that's kind of what's driving the risk asset rally, right? Yeah, no, that's a fair that's a fair question, and I do think that um, when you look longer term, the prospects for for uh, for rates within Europe, certainly, you know, you have to think they're going higher. It's, it seems like they're at unsustainable levels where they are right now. Um, but we do think there's quite a bit of time between now and when that ultimately takes place. The Fed's been very clear about, um, you know, they're, they're dug in right now and very, very unlikely, we think, to see uh, a hike anytime within 2019. Um, and we do think that Europe, I mean, you know, you're talking very, very slow growth. So, you know, in inflation that's well below target. So you really have to get those factors moving in the right direction. But before you'd have to be overly concerned about, you know, an upward trajectory in, in the overall rate environment. So not a 2019 thing. We don't think so. We think, you know, you're probably looking out, you know, past 2020 or, or even later. Mike before Buchanan. rates become a real material risk to the upside. Mike Buchanan, wonderful getting your point of view. Thank you so much. Mike Buchanan is Deputy Chief Investment Officer for Western Asset Management, uh, an independent affiliate of Like Mason overseeing about $430 billion from Pasadena, California. How does one value Uber? This is, becomes important as it prepares its initial public offering that is expected to raise about $10 billion. Joining us to discuss, Shura Ovide, technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in our interactive brokers studios. So Shira, we got the S1 filing, so we got some financial information for the first time about Uber. What did it show us? Well, it showed us that Uber is a complex business, which we knew, but the S1 was 350-some-odd pages, including financial statements, which is, you know, pretty meaty. And uh, so I learned a couple things. One... Did you read the whole thing? Uh, okay. Uh, I skimmed a lot of it, okay. but, uh, you know, I read the important bits. So a couple things were, were evident. Look, this is basically two businesses, two main businesses. The on-demand rides, which is 80% of revenue, and then Uber Eats, which is their food younger food delivery business, which is 15% or so of revenue. And the on-demand ride business is large, but also not growing very fast, at least by kind of current tech startup standards that the the... the the, it's in the sort of 20 plus percent range right now, which is, again, maybe not the growth rate that investors have come to expect from young companies going public. We also have to remember that, look, Uber is basically not a startup by any conventional definition of that term. It has 11 plus billion dollars in annual revenue. It is going to be valued at something like $100 billion, which is a pretty unheard of range. And despite being pretty big and pretty old by startup standards, it lost, it had an operating loss of $3 billion last year. 
So what's the mitigating factor here? I mean, I was also reading about how their actual ride sharing business, which is the mainstay, is slowing. It is indeed. It, it is indeed. It's it's now kind of growing at the 20 plus percent range. So I, I would assume that that is going to be a significant concern for investors. And, and the thing I wonder about is, how big is demand really in that business? And I think I had the same question coming out of Lyft. And is it economically viable? Do the unit economics work? And I don't think we have, I don't think we really know for sure about either one of those, um, either one of those essential questions about the on-demand ride business. So then the question really becomes from the investor standpoint, uh, there was a lot of talk earlier in the week about the incredible enthusiasm around the Uber IPO, how this is going to be the biggest one of the year. Um, and now we're looking at Lyft shares down another 4% today uh, in, in, in U.S. trading. I'm just struggling to see whether there will be the same demand that people had expected for Uber's IPO. I, I think that's a really good, great question. I, the thing I can't figure out is, you know, is is what we're seeing with Lyft's trading that the IPO went well, but it's it's traded down significantly in the aftermarket since then. Is that a reflection of look? There's a relatively small um, percentage of shares available to trade. There's been kind of more short interest activity than we typically see in a company like this. Or does this reflect doubts about Lyft specifically, or Lyft relative to Uber, or does it just reflect? doubts about the viability of this whole category, which of course affects Uber as well. Right. Uh, I think these are really good points. So moving on to Uber's business model and Uber Eats, the whole food delivery system, how profitable is that? I mean, is that the holy grail right now? We don't really know because they, they don't necessarily break out the profitability of Uber Eats, but I think it's fair to say that that business is kind of the incubating business, one of the incubating businesses inside of uh, inside of Uber, basically, look, all of their businesses are unprofitable, but Eats is more unprofitable than the others. Okay, so that's not great. Not great. Uh, so, <laughs> not great, Bob. Not great. Yeah. I, I guess I, that what, one question. Growing fast, but growing fast. And look, there is there is some some comparisons out there for food delivery businesses, right? In the U.S., we have a company like Grubhub, which is you know a, a fast growing, quite profitable company that does the same thing that Uber Eats does. Okay, so just quickly, um, an existential question, which is, can ride-sharing companies be profitable without self-driving cars? I don't know. <laughs> That's my answer. Okay. <laughs> right, but, I don't but, know. I mean, but like, isn't that essentially the question here? Because yes. that is sort of the what these businesses are predicated on is Correct. that they don't have to pay a driver. Correct. I, I think, so they're going to, two things have to happen, at least two things have to happen. One is the fares for on-demand rides need to come down. And some of that is technology. Some of that is driverless cars, but they can do other things too, right? Push more people into these kind of carpooling services like Uber Pool, um, make more efficient routes, get more efficient in all aspects of the business and drive fares down and get people out of cars and onto scooters and bikes. But I think that is an open question about whether this whether delivering a ride on demand with a driver uh, is going to be a, a, a nicely profitable business ever. Sure, Oviday. Always wonderful speaking with you. Shira Oviday is Bloomberg columnist covering all things tech. She's fabulous. Follow her work, uh, Bloomberg.com uh, slash opinion. She is a terrific columnist. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.